The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Welcome to episode 13 of The Wizard Files, the special interview series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine. Joining us this time around is a man who was not only present for the launch of Wizard, but was also responsible for the first fan backlash against the Fletchling fanzine. He was also instrumental in the launch of Toy Fair Magazine, which led to a career in television as the executive producer writer of the legendary Robot Chicken, and now the creator of the animated comedy series Devil make here on nbc it is our great pleasure to welcome to the show doug goldstein how's it going doug it's going very well i'm glad to be here it's an honor <laughs> so uh we're coming at you hot right out of the gate doug during the short run that you had heading up the magic words section in wizards first few issues you ignited a debate that proved to be an eternal flame of controversy for years in the letters column so now we ask during the 30th anniversary of wizard the guide to comics with three decades of wisdom and life experience under your belt can you now definitively answer the question could iron man defeat the x-men i'm pretty sure i answered it 30 years ago with a yes <laughs> and i feel like if the mcu had existed back then people wouldn't argue as much because iron man has become the character for the whole world and this whole generation which is awesome but you know iron man's got flight and that puts him in like an automatic win over any X-Man that doesn't have flight, except for maybe Cyclops, but Iron Man can take a shot. And I want to point your attention to, I really don't know which issue of Secret Wars in uh, the early 80s. Spider-Man, on his own, took out the X-Men. It seems unbelievable, but if... If Spider-Man can do it, Iron Man can certainly do it. There you go. And yes, you're right. History has definitely proven you correct. So Damn right. Now, you're, obviously, your confidence in Tony Stark's abilities had to come from somewhere. So we want to know, tell us how comics entered your life and the road that led you to a store owned by the Seamus family with your origin story. Oh, this is going to be excitingly mundane. <laughs> I remember that in junior high school, one of my friends, I don't remember who at this point, gave me a copy of Iron Man... I want to say 168, but I, I think I'm off by a few issues where the cover is Enter the Chessmen, where Iron Man is fighting a bishop villain on like a joust floating horse. And it immediately caught my attention. I mean, this is this is for me in junior high school. That's what, 700 years ago. So there's nothing else to do. <laughs> but I the more I read, the more I fell in love with Iron Man, because here's a guy who stands toe-to-toe -to -toe with characters like Thor and the Hulk. There's an issue of Iron Man where he knocks out the Hulk with, with a good punch. And he's just a guy who's smart enough to build an, a suit that gives him that status. Tony Stark walking down the street, you know, he's like a pile of potatoes. You can push him down, you can mush him if you've got super strength. There's, there's nothing you can do. But when he's Iron Man, he's at the top of the pile. And I always admired that because that made you kind of think that if you, a junior high school kid, are smart enough someday... You could build armor, too. You know, you don't have to be irradiated with radiation or given a secret, you know, super soldier formula. Anybody can do this if they're smart enough. And I, I just I just love that. And I rooted for him. That is awesome. Now, how did you ultimately, as you're reading Iron Man comics and you're getting more into that world, how did you discover the Wizard of Cards store? What are your memories of becoming a customer there? Well, down Route 59 from the store 
was at one time a restaurant called Ponderosa's, a chain. I think the chain's gone. And that was my first part-time job. Eventually, at that job was Pat McCallum. He was doing dishes. I was the cashier guy. His sister was the only person there that was better than I was at the cashiering. And we became friends, you know, comics. You're talking about stuff like that. And eventually, the Seamuses opened the store, and Pat applied to, I don't know if he was the manager right away, but he applied to work there, whatever. And I would visit him there all the time. I was basically like very guilty of loitering, always hanging out, making him not work, annoying everybody else. But then I got to know the Seamuses and it was all good. And eventually they started talking about doing, I think it was just a little ash can type publication first, but it, it became the wizard of the world. We all know. And I would drive home from SUNY Albany, a two hour drive every weekend to work for them. Wow. Because that was much cooler, much more fun than whatever the hell I was doing up there. And at the same time, I was going to college for political science. And the more I learned about it, the more disillusioned and disgusted I was by the whole thing. So I said, let me take some time off. I'll work for Wizard full time. Garib offered me $7 an hour. I insisted on eight and stood my ground. <laughs> and I never went back to college because I was just having the time of my life uh, working at Wizard. And now... Many years later, here I am because of all of it. If I had cared more about college, I would not be here. <laughs> now, what do you recall about the idea as it evolved into producing a full-fledged magazine and the launch? Like, were you involved in the distribution at the San Diego Comic-Con in 91? Were you there for that? That does not ring a bell. What happened at San Diego Comic-Con? They had a San Diego Comic-Con edition of the magazine. So that was a big deal in the early days is they, we have our Comic-Con edition. We still have copies. You can win. And it was, they were promoting it as this collectible. Well, I certainly wasn't there for Comic-Con in 91. That I would have remembered. But there were many aspects of the magazine that the Seamuses thought could be collectible the way the comics or the cards were. And I think that really only caught on once. When we launched Inquest, the gaming magazine, we had quote-unquote exclusive cards that we made ourselves for games that never turned out to exist. You know, there were half-issue comic books in Wizard, which I think the max number one half is collectible, the others maybe not so much. But the one big thing that was collectible, and excuse me if this is a tangent, is when we started selling exclusive action figures through Toy Fair, the very first one was Radioactive Homer Simpson, where... It was the same exact Homer mold, but they use glow-in-the-dark material. And, you know, he's in the uh, his radiation suit. And that, that took off. I think that's still worth something. But it's, it's never really something that worked out. Because obviously they came from that world of selling collectibles and things like that. So, yeah, why can't we manufacture the idea of collectibles yeah. through our magazine? Yeah. It was a lot of fun at the time. And at the time, people thought it was cool. And it was. But I think collectibles coming from a magazine isn't it doesn't click in people's brains the way it does of oh it's an exclusive comic book that's just on sale it mm -hmm. doesn't it didn't really connect that way real quick going back to the the early days in the the Seamus family home according to brian cunningham we just talked to him recently and he said he used to send in his letter column you know his toying around column on a yellow legal pad to you and one of your jobs was to just type it up for the magazine issue number two you and pat are credited as editor assistance but obviously your role would evolve over the years you know to titles you know, you're a writer your editorial production manager special editions editor you know and so on and so forth with so many different magazines that came out so how would you describe your change in responsibilities as wizard began to grow were you ambitious about it did they just hand off hey take care of this doug i was very lucky in that i started working there before the first issue came out because i was there and as more things needed to get done, I was there to do them. And 
I kind of grew with the company. And I mean, if later on, year two of the publication or whatever, they put out an ad for the things that I did, I would never have gotten hired for it. You know, I, I don't know what the hell I was doing. I learned Quark Express and Photoshop Illustrator on my own to, to produce the pages and design them. And from that, I think I ended up doing every page of issue 11 by myself just because the other person quit. And I'm like, I guess it's all me. And because I was doing the page design at first, I was also sending the materials to the printer, not the printer there at that. In those days, you actually made the film first out of your files and the, the film was set to the printer. So I did all that. I, the FedExing, the, the discs, the coordination. And because of that, I slowly became production manager, then production director. Then I was working with the plants to get each magazine printed every month and deal with the headaches and inspect the, the plants. And I became like the guy that would receive the magazines first and check them out if I made a mistake or not. And once or twice I did, and that was horrifying. And eventually I felt bad because here I am in the upstairs crew. We, we had a two-story office building and upstairs was all the accounting and, you know, the marketing people and Garb and blah, blah, blah. Downstairs was everybody that was fun. Downstairs was all the editorial, people shooting Nerf guns at each other all day. It was awesome. <laughs> and eventually I'm like, you know, I'm proud of what I'm doing. I'm proud of how these magazines get printed. But I feel like I'm just printing stuff that other people are having fun making. And so I asked if I could become the special editions guy, which at the point I think was either a new position or the person had left who was doing it. And I think everybody loved that idea. Fred, the guy that ran the company for Garib, I think he certainly loved the idea because he loved the idea of someone coming in to replace me that maybe knew it in his mind, knew what they were doing, whereas I had just learned on the job. And it kind of worked and I was having the best time. And as I was producing the special edition magazines, like the dark book was the very first one ever. Yeah. We're about to cover that actually really soon here. Well, they kind of started throwing at me like every time they would launch a new magazine sometimes maybe it started as a special, but it didn't matter. Like I would be the guy to put it together. The first issue help do the editorial with Pat and everybody and then get it going. And then eventually it would be handed off to people that were experts in that field. You know, I, like you said, I, I helped start toy fair, but I wouldn't call myself an action figure expert. So eventually it was handed off to people that knew what they were doing. And that was awesome. I, I felt like I was doing something new every month, which was great, except for like the months where it was Pokemon. And then I just wanted to blow my brains out. <laughs> But it was still fun. That's great, yeah, that you got to have a little bit of variety, even though it didn't always go necessarily directly to your interests. But I'm curious, when did you start to realize that Wizard had an influence, you know, in the comics industry, that people were paying attention, that the publishers cared, the artists and writers cared about what was going in there? Were there any particularly entertaining controversies that you could recall or any big milestones where you were like, wow, this is pretty big? You know, at first... I think we flew under the radar because the first few issues, I don't remember how long it lasted, maybe six or eight issues. We would have the character on the cover with like a purple wizard's hat. Right. And eventually the combo company was like, can you, can you stop doing that, please? <laughs> you know, we, we have no reason to see Spider-Man wearing a purple starred wizard's hat. So cut that out. That's the only early thing I can remember because I never, it never occurred to me that 
it, it's a big deal for the company to notice. I thought we were having fun. The combo companies are having fun, and sometimes we're doing it together. I was really innocent in those days. Now, did you? Was there anybody in particular for you? Obviously, like you're saying, you were you were reading Iron Man and other characters like that. Bob Layton, you know, was an artist for a while that was big on Iron Man, and then he goes over to do Valiant and things like that. Were there any particular comics professionals that you got to associate with that meant a lot to you? I think the only one at that age that I was really like, oh my god, was John Byrne, and. He wasn't the kind of guy to schmooze with us, which is fine. You don't have to. I became friends with many of them because it was my job to mingle with them. And, and some of them are great people and whatever. I actually, working at Wizard and meeting all these comic creators, in a way, ruined comics for me. Hmm. Because I, I could no longer have that innocent idea of like, whoa, what is Iron Man going to do next issue? It became, what is that writer going to do with Iron Man that issue? Like I saw behind the curtain mm-hmm. and it kind of ruined the illusion. And so, you know, it's funny after a while, like I, I met my wife in 2004 and she collected comics. And by that point I was like, what if you stopped buying a hundred dollars worth of comics every week? (laughs) What if this wasn't important? And you know, so that's, I, I entered as a huge fanboy. I left jaded and broken. That is interesting. And yet you mentioned some of the perks, like you said, are the people that were awesome, that were fun to schmooze with. And I, I have to ask, felt like Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti were like the other guys at Wizard. Like they were just like hanging out in your offices all the time. They're in the magazine all the time. As far as the readers are concerned, did you hobnob with them very much? No, not me personally. Those are the years that I was in uh, doing the, the printing, okay. unfortunately. A lot of the schmoozing happens where we would go to them because we were in the suburbs of New York City and they were in the city. And if you had a choice, you're going into the city. You're not leaving the city to come to some office building in the middle of nowhere. So there was a lot of lunches and meetings and stuff like that. And at that point of my working there, I just got told it and I was jealous and they patted me on the head and told me to go back to work. Wow. Now, one of the, the stories that, that Pat tells, at least, who, who he, he had told in some retrospective issues is how really, like, the first, you know, eight, nine issues were not selling that well. It felt like it was just kind of going to be, you know, oh, well, we tried it, didn't work out. And then with issue number 10, there was this Rob Liefeld cover where he's got Cable on the cover, he's got Shaft from Youngblood on the cover, Marvel's not happy with it. But this becomes a huge selling issue that kind of saves the company, saves the magazine. And then now in these later days, you know, Rob Liefeld continues to be very critical of Wizard Magazine on his podcast. Like, he can't get over it. He just has to trash it whenever he can. But I'm just curious, what was your take on the relationship between Image and Wizard in the early days? Like, were you personally on board for the hype around this new wave of talent, jumping ship for Marvel and all they were going to accomplish? I loved most of their work before they left Marvel because... Those were the days where they were still a little restrained in their styles. They didn't go bananas with their their particular look. And it really, I mean, Todd McFarlane on Spider-Man, you can't beat that. I mean, it's so dynamic. It was so fluid. I cared less about Spawn than Spider-Man because I just didn't find the story as deep. And I think that was the problem that I had is that they kind of stopped being comics and they started being just appreciated for their artwork and they happen to have word balloons in there. And that really hurt everything because that kind of made Marvel and DC try to copy that. And they had like all these second rate artists that were kind of, you know, life held wannabes and the stories just got bland and it bummed me out. But on the same, on the same token, those were the years where the number of comics for sale 
exploded. Right. And so there was more for everybody. And there's a, because of that, and it is the image guys that were like the tent pole that, that made that all happen. A lot of great comics existed that maybe they never would have. So, I mean, it's not a, it's not a bad thing mm-hmm. at the same time. Here's Valiant run by Jim Shooter. And those issues had very just presentable artwork. They weren't meant to be flashy. They were meant to be functional. And they were that was actually great. But their stories were fantastic. And we thought that that company was going to be a different kind of tentpole and return fantastic writing to comics. Because all of us that worked there kind of grew up in the 80s and the... You know, the Jim Shooter run at Marvel, where you had Frank Miller and Daredevil, you had John Byrne and Fantastic Four, and so on. That's kind of a golden period. They had stories that ran for years, because the, the creators didn't jump books every two days. And we thought maybe writing is going to come to the forefront again, the same way artwork is at the forefront now. And that never happened. I don't know why. Maybe because no one cares about the story they just want to look at the pretty pictures in those days well yeah it's, it's interesting you say that because yeah it feels like the valiant story that and they really seem to be at the forefront of wizard as the coverage in the magazine will attest and a lot of people nowadays say like why is valiant so on the top of wizard's list in these early days and they they, they kind of forget that it was a big deal it's just that the image legacy has lasted longer even with the relaunch of valiant and things like that but it just seems like yeah that people are they're kind of like well, why why did people care about Valiant? And so, you know, obviously it sounds like you on the, you know, on the editorial side, you guys definitely had a, a preference just recognizing the, the value of a story. It's totally like, you know, you look at a Michael Bay movie and it's all spectacle, like a, like a comic where the artwork is in the forefront. It's all just eyeball stuff. The story is not there. But then you go see, you know, a much less publicized film made by someone who cares about the story. And you're like, this this is amazing. People are going to watch this movie 10 or 20 years down the road, long after they forget about this big shoot 'em up that Michael Bay did. And it's the same thing. You know, people nowadays still remember like, oh, my God, I, I remember where I was when I saw the first Transformers movie. It was a huge, it was awesome. But the average person in the street is not remembering that little indie film that came out at the same time. You know, I'm sure the indie film has its diehard fans that are going to watch it until the day they die. But the average guy just has no idea. Now, obviously, you know, there were a lot of hijinks in the wizard offices over the years. Some were printed in the magazine itself. Some were behind the scenes. And we've gotten a lot of those stories from your former co-workers. But shockingly, in Wizard 100, there is a picture of you from a company scavenger hunt that says here, nude at the urinal. That's misleading. (laughs) Yes, and it actually features you clad only in boxer shorts standing at a urinal, but perhaps you could read your description of the circumstances surrounding this photo from that issue, and that we could discuss what really happened there. I should preface this by saying that since I was there with Pat before day one, it kind of felt like I had a special sense of ownership that it's like, yeah, I was there since day one. All the stuff that is happening now is kind of crafted out of the stuff that we worked on. And that gave me a kind of confidence that sometimes often did not serve me well at all, um, but sometimes gave me a sense of bravery that I may not otherwise have had to do things like take off all my clothes in a fast food joint. (laughs) 
just so I'm understanding as well. So this says it was a company scavenger hunt. So obviously you guys ran scavenger hunts in the magazine over many years that the fans could participate in. We actually have some of the prizes in our archives, like an autographed hat, you know, that you signed among other staff members, things like that. Great. But I'm just curious, did you guys also just do it for yourselves for fun? Like you would have a scavenger hunt? Yeah, totally. And that's mostly Pat's doing. Pat is really just a big kid. And if somebody said scavenger hunt, he was like, oh, I love scavenger hunts. And it just became this thing people started talking about. He's like, yeah, let's do it. We're going to set aside a day and we're going to make a scavenger hunt. And there'd be one guy in the office. Maybe it was Mike Searle who was expert at putting scavengers together and it just became a thing. And we just did it. I mean, that's that's what how much fun the early years of Wizard were before we got beaten down by the business side of things, I guess. Before I read this, you have to understand that to the right of the text is a picture of me in my green striped boxers facing a urinal at a fast in a fast food restaurant's bathroom. There's a nice big arrow pointing at me saying 98 pounds of pure Doug. I think I was over 98, but it doesn't look like that. <laughs> and I really forgot how handsome I was at this age. Like this, this, this picture should be a collectible itself. <laughs> and I'm looking back with this like, intense look at the camera oh, I, I remember this this is so much a fun. smoldering look some might say Small, oh yeah like a sultry type <laughs> of deal so here's the text uh quote we almost had a disaster with this shot said special editions editor doug goldstein captain of the winning squirrel monkeys team yeah we did win that's right i forgot so here's here's what i say there i am in this tiny crappy dirty little mcdonald's bathroom Stripped down to my shoes and jimmies. Oh, thank God I had my shoes on. That would have been disgusting. I give the signal to my teammate right outside the door that I'm ready because there was no room for him in the bathroom with me. And he opens the door to take the photo, exposing me to, I'm adding here, exposing me to the restaurant. So then he proceeds to try to make the camera work, which it doesn't. You would think he would have dealt with that beforehand. <laughs> While I'm sweating, waiting for a bus of nuns to go by, because a window even made me visible to the outdoors, he's futzing around. So I close the door, cursing at him, and wait until the second and ultimately successful attempt. Who was that photographer? The only person I remember on my team was this guy, Bob Marshall. Maybe it was him. Good times. <laughs> so it obviously it was worth it. You guys won. This probably puts you over the edge there for sure. No one else had the guts. Yeah, and they probably gave us a free signed copy of Wizard signed by Pat McCallum. <laughs> But it was really just a crazy-ass place where comic fans were just doing stuff they thought was cool. I mean, it was, I love those days. Now, outside of this particular story, is there, like, a Pat-based prank or one that you yourself were involved in that stands out to you? Just something that was a moment of craziness that you enjoyed? I missed this one, and I wish I hadn't. But every Thursday morning, all the department heads would meet in the office building's main conference room. And Garib would sit at the head of the table by the door, and we would all go around the table and explain what happened in our department that week and blah, 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 blah. Now, opposite Garib, down this long table, is where Pat would usually sit, and behind him was the big window overlooking the parking lot. Now, there was one time where, I think this was Pat's idea, I think he thought it was funny, they went up before the meeting with, like, a dummy wearing real clothes, and position themselves over that window and they how did they time it 
according to Matt, there was a walkie-talkie. So, oh, okay. So Matt was in the meeting. He had a walkie-talkie that he pushed a bunch of times to tell them oh, to go. Matt, that sneaky bastard. <laughs> As Pat was talking, Matt clicked his thing. Everyone's looking in Pat's direction towards the window. Somebody dropped the dummy, and it shot past the window. And everybody who was looking at Pat lost their shit. That didn't know. Like, all the business people lost their shit, but the, the editorial people were like sniggering you had the mild-mannered newsstand guy jump out like oh call 911 and that kind of shit is it was hilarious and it was awesome i don't know why everyone wasn't fired i mean in a normal company that would have been the case i guess they really valued us i guess they understood that we were putting together a good magazine and they couldn't just be like you gave everyone a heart attack you bastards and we just got away with a lot of shit it was awesome we're actually collecting every perspective on that story because we, we first we heard it third hand, you know, that everybody downstairs was like, we just heard this happened. And then we heard it from Brian. We've got yours. And I'm hoping to get mad on the show one of these days because I heard his recollection at the 25th anniversary panel. But I'm very curious to find out if he wants to elaborate on the show one of these days. We'll put it all together. We'll recreate the scene. It's got to be like the first books of the Bible where they talk about the same stuff. <laughs> yeah. They all kind of fuel details different. Exactly. Now, in my research and, and looking back through all the issues and studying the mastheads, there is a moment where it feels like you disappear from the wizard masthead entirely. It seems like from like late 94 until 97, we, we don't see you as like a production manager. Like that. And I was curious, was there a period where you weren't with the magazine? You no, know, if I remember correctly, and I could be making this up, there was a time where the masthead was getting crazy like we were really had to reduce the size of the font we were, there were just too many people there and as a solution it was suggested that in magazines usually you only list the people directly involved in creating that magazine's content like the editorial staff the publisher you know you got to list the advertising people because people need to find them to buy ads but the nuts and bolts people would not be listed like you're not going to open a copy of you know time magazine and find the name of the assistant you know, accounting person. And I think through that period of time, my name was pushed off. And at the time I was probably really pissy. Nowadays I'm like, if I was pissy about that, it's really petty. Um, and if I came back, maybe just people just realized the injustice of all that. And they, they put back all those names, but I wasn't doing anything. Cra I didn't like go off on a spy mission to Germany in those <laughs> days or anything. So did you have, was it like 15 years? How long officially were you with the magazine? Then obviously from the prehistory to your departure, 90 or 91 I started, and I left the summer of 2004. So it was like 13-ish plus years. All right. Now, during that time, we're, we're going to get into your Toy Fair experience, because obviously, if people could listen to this as a Toy Fair podcast, they would love that just as much. But in 1998, you became the editor of Toons, the animation magazine. Mm -hmm. So what can you tell us in your involvement in launching that special project and its ultimate fate? I believe that was a, quarter, a quarterly or we just did it like two or three times. It wasn't something that lived that long. Mm -hmm. And I think we did it just to capitalize on Pokemon. I think we just threw Pikachu on the cover because you could throw Pikachu on a pack of cigarettes and it suddenly became a, a huge seller. Like Pikachu was everywhere. And looking back, we were incredibly stupid with the content of that magazine because we just thought the title was Toons, you know, the animation magazine, and we would put everything that was animated in this thing. If it was animated, you're in there. And there was a big section that was like, here's the, the cartoons or whatever coming next season. 
listing everything, pictures. It, you know, it seemed great at the time. We got a letter from this guy, and it was the only complaint that that is about this point. But I think he was dead right, and I feel embarrassed about it. He said he was reading the magazine with his little kid as a bedtime thing, and he was reading about Pokemon. He turns the page, and there is this massive image from like the heavy metal sequel where the woman is has like gigantic breasts with a skimpy little red leather thing and it's really not for kids and he says he slammed the magazine closed so his son wouldn't see it that's a good point that's maybe we should have rethought that hindsight is 2020 but at the time we were just like yeah yeah animation and i think i think we stopped publishing it just because of that period of time where you could make money off of Pikachu on the cover slowly faded away. Curious too, like when I was thinking, why would a magazine focusing just on animation and things like that not succeed? I was wondering if it was because there wasn't like a price guide element because there isn't a collectability to cartoons. You know, the market for animation cells being made available to the general public, like at that time you could go to the Warner Brothers store in a mall and they would have an animation cell gallery where you could buy it for, you know, an original Bugs Bunny or something for a couple hundred bucks but it wasn't something like that everybody could participate in and it felt like whether it was wizard or toy fair or inquest or any of these things where it was like yeah i can go to a store and pick these things up for a couple bucks but there was no collectability presented in tunes it was just like here's cartoons yeah i think it's half that like there's no reason you had to pick this up to look up the prices of your latest collectible and half the fact that i i don't know if there's such a thing truly as a passionate animation fan that as an umbrella they love all animation you know you can be a fan of you know infinity train that doesn't mean you're running out to buy old copies of gundam to watch it's like saying you like watching tv and that means every tv show is your favorite no just you you pick up your favorite tv shows so i really have to say again for the record pikachu on the cover (laughs) <laughs> that's that's why we did it now obviously toy fair was like the most high profile magazine seemingly to spin out of wizard due in no small part to the popularity of twisted toy fair theater and, and just the coverage in general the popularity of action figures and really the expansion of production of action figures during that period so what can you tell us about the genesis of twisted toy fair theater of toy fair as a magazine and, and your involvement there we had a section for toys in Wizard that was just becoming more and more popular. And the Seamus has still kept their store throughout this whole time. So they were able to see what was selling. And it didn't always mean anything to us. You know, we, we knew what we were covering. But I believe they saw that action figures were still slowly growing as something that was truly collectible, where it wasn't always something thought of as collectible. And I think we did our market research, which probably meant we just asked our friends what they thought. And I mean, Pat loved the idea and Pat, what Pat liked was a huge influence on what we did. But it really was just if someone downstairs, so to speak, thinks it's awesome and someone upstairs thinks it'll sell, the two things click and we would make it. And that's what happened with Toy Fairs. It sounds really mundane, but... Yeah, it's like you you try it, you put it out there, it sells, it continues to sell. Yeah. Tunes, maybe not selling that much. Toy Fair, all of a sudden, there's, what is this? This is awesome. So then Twisted Toy Fair Theater becomes this kind of phenomenon where everybody's just like, I can't believe they're getting these figures and these characters to talk this way. And as that is developing, I know Pat had a, a big hand in, in creating those a lot of times, but what would you say was the initial push for Twisted Toy Fair Theater? Is that something everybody came up with together? Did somebody just come up with the gag and say we should do more of that 
Well, it really started with the Congo line, the Spider-Man Congo line, where we had over a certain number of pages, Pat or whoever had gotten every Spider-Man figure that existed and photoshopped them into the magazine as one long Congo line that took several pages to, to fill up. Yeah, it's amazing. And in trying to be, you know, just stupid asses in the magazine, we would put word balloons everywhere. I mean, that started with early issues of Wizard just to be funny. And so there's word balloons all over this thing, Spider-Man talking to himself. And we got a huge response. People loved it, that specifically. And the question was, how can you do more of that? And the idea of making a photographed, like, comic book with the, with the toys just was a natural suggestion. And in the early days, Pat was insanely involved, I think, over the very, very many years he had too much to do to be directly involved with it. I could I could be wrong about that. I could be wrong about all this. <laughs> but but from your personal involvement then, what were you adding? Were you directly involved in the Twisted Toy Fair Theater then in the writing and offering gags? Yes. Um, many times it would be me, Tom Root, and Pat going off to like Bennigan's to lunch to brainstorm what the Twisted Toy Fair would be for that issue. And then, you know, you get the ball rolling. We're suggesting jokes to each other. And I had nothing to do with it after that, as far as creating it, like the photographing and everything. I think that was mostly Zach Oat. But then when it came back as printouts, like the designers actually put the pages together, it came back to me and a lot of other people when we'd all suggest tweaks to the word balloons. We would literally have a clipboard with those printouts on it with a list of names written on the side of the paper that when you look it over and suggest your jokes, you would cross your name off and give it to the next person on that list which was a great process that got so abused that it collapsed under its own weight. People would come to their desk and find like a dozen clipboards for different things. Oh, wow. And people would be like, where's my clipboard? And it's like, I can't get to it. And it just became this ridiculous thing. But I mean, that did work. I mean, we had a lot of great stuff in the magazine because, you know, somewhere in the office, someone had a good idea for a joke and this caught it. And was there one in particular that always stood out for you, either like a running gag or a character or one that you maybe you got a more hands-on approach to really craft into something like, oh, I want to do this story with this character? The one thing that comes to mind, and I wish Brian Cunningham was here right now, we would have these things called big shots, which would be a funny photo with the toys that we would pepper through the price guide because otherwise the price guide is valueless unless you're looking for your toy. I mean, there's nothing on the page for you to care about. So we had these pictures, they were jokes, and we would have the photography team, I think Zach mainly, shoot them in interesting poses with each other. You know, not something too specific so that you can't come up with a joke, uh, not something too lame so that the jokes would be stupid, but just something. So I'm looking at this clipboard, I'm laying on the floor of Pat's office, Pat and Brian are in there, it's after hours at that point, and I'm punchy, and there are these two figures looking to the left, like there's something off screen to the left. And one of them has his hand up pointing. So all you have to go on is they're both looking at something. So I don't know where this came from, but I wrote down that the guy on the left is saying, look, oranges. And the guy on the right is saying, I see them, oranges. And for whatever reason, <laughs> I almost had to go to the hospital. I was laughing so much. I thought that was the funniest thing on earth. And Brian thought I had lost my mind. And... I think for years after that, anytime Brian wanted to dig at me, he'd be like, yeah, orange it. <laughs> 
Uh, now, in uh, the September 2001 issue of Wizard, it was announced that Seth Green was collaborating with the members of the Toy Fair crew to create a stop-motion action figure skit series called Sweet J Presents. It's going to yes. be webisodes on the new Sony online platform, <laughs> ScreenBlast.com. Now, this, of course, evolved into Robot Chicken, but what can you tell us about Seth's early visits to the Wizard and Toy Fair offices and, and how you your collaboration with with Matt and Tom Root and everything developed into this team? Well, I was running Toy Fair for like, what, three or four issues before it was handed off to people that knew what they were doing, like I said. (laughs) At some point after that, I think for an interim period, or maybe it was meant to be permanent and just changed, Matt was the editor of Toy Fair magazine. Like I think people just rotated out of that position. And at the time, he had heard Seth say on a talk show that he just happened to be watching, they referenced that he likes action figures. And Matt was like, oh, It'd be awesome to get him, you know, interview him for the magazine. So I remember he said he called Seth's agent and Seth's agent was like, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll pass this along. Like he's got better things to do, you know. And Seth himself calls Matt back saying, I love your magazine. I read it all the time. And that turned into a whirlwind romance between Matt and Seth. They became fast friends. We we would throw like an annual party at our house, me, Matt, and whoever we happened to be roommates with at the time. And he would come out to help plan the party and be a part of it. Like we all became friends. Somewhere along the line, I know this now, but I didn't know this then. If you're working in Hollywood, you never stop thinking of things to pitch. Because once you stop, you then go broke and you're homeless. So Seth and Brecken, Brecken Meyer, I think, and another guy I don't really know, were trying or had tried to do a series of shorts with stop motion animation comedy called Sweet J Presents, which I think was supposed to be Sweet Jesus Presents. And he was like, you know, you guys, you guys would be perfect to write this shit. And that got bounced around. Seth talked to different people about it. And at the time, Sony had put together a video editing package for the internet called Screen Blast. And they said, we will fund this if we're allowed to tell everybody that you used our Screen Blast video editing software to put it together, which never happened. <laughs> because you say video editing software now, and you're like, okay, whatever. In those days, the internet was like it took 10 pages to download a piece of, you know, one page. It wasn't up to it. You couldn't really use it. It was crap. Uh, I'm sure I'm insulting somebody by saying that. but you know. <laughs> And Seth and Matt used those little mini shorts that we did as like pitch material to get a, tr- a real show going. And I think at one point, Comedy Central said, yeah, we'll do it. But then 9-11 hit and everybody decided that no one wanted to be funny at the time. And then there was a changing of the guard at Comedy Central. And so we that fell apart. And I'm very happy about that because Adult Swim gave Robot Chicken so much freedom to do anything within limits, but very small limits. That that, I think, is part of the, the show's success. I think Comedy Central would have wanted a more traditional 22-minute story with the same characters every uh episode but as a sketch comedy i think that that was its destiny and yeah, thank god for adult swim yeah that channel flipping format yeah yeah you know given that pat was you know a very integral part of toy fair and, and wizard and twisted toy fair theater all those things putting that together is there a particular reason that he wouldn't have made the jump with you guys to robot chicken was just wizard was just such a big entity he was in charge that just wasn't time to take a risk on a new project you make it sound very calculated it really was just that pat I mean, Wizard was part of his DNA. It was his heart. Like, he he can say that all those magazines grew out of stuff that he wanted to do. And for the most part, that's true. I think it would have taken a lot to pull him away from that. And I don't think this 
was it. I mean, we had, we had other opportunities. I remember one company, oh, what were they called? I, I have no idea what they were called, but they asked me, Matt, and Pat to fly out, and they offered us money to be the editorial team of their website because they were importing Japanese toys or whatever. You know, in the, when the internet began, you had a ton of dumbass companies trying to make money off of nothing. <laughs> and me and Matt were kind of on board, and Pat was like, no, I don't, I don't think I'm done with Wizard. And I don't think he was ever done with wizard and that that totally makes sense like you said you know he's this this force behind a magazine that kind of lets him run the show and, and create a lot of fun stuff that he's interested in so yeah. now robot chicken is likely the most high profile project really to come from the wizard legacy but what percentage of people that you would talk to now when you are being interviewed specifically about robot chicken even know what wizard or toy fair was while you're discussing the history of the show like do you guys bring it up do you mention it that's where it started i do i mentioned that's where we came from that's where we met seth and so on and there's two kind of people there's the person that says wizard oh yeah and then the conversation gets much more exciting and then there's people like oh okay and they they have no idea what i'm talking about <laughs> it's 50 50 i think especially in this town you know people know it but as you're talking to the younger fans you might as well be talking about you know buggy whip monthly or something right <laughs> which is fine people move on it's fine. Now, when you're talking about, you know, Robot Chicken, throughout the series, I guess there have always been superhero-based characters, but there also have been just general pop culture, you know, TV, movie characters, and things like that. So was there ever a, a conscious decision, or is it, again, not calculated? This is this is what would be funny today. Let's just throw this in this episode. I mean, picture a bunch of nerds who have been watching TV their whole life in movies. You can imagine that every time they saw a show or a movie, they had something to say. We were the kind of people that when the movie was over, we would stand in the theater lobby and just talk about it until somebody got hungry and we left. So it's almost like we had a library in our brains of things we wanted to just get out. And so we would find, we'd remember the little moments in these famous movies that deserve to be picked or made fun of or uh, criticized and make jokes out of it and the sketch. And I think that was the source material for a lot of the early stuff. And then, of course, you know, we would we would pick up that week's Entertainment Weekly or a hardcover book, The History of Action Figures, and just peruse, you know, just, okay, on this page is a picture of Paris Hilton. Does that spark anything? No? Okay, turn the page. And just whatever comes to our mind, that's funny. We just try to run with it. We certainly couldn't use recurring figures. We didn't own the rights to anybody. So we can't be like, here's the regularly scheduled, you know, Star Trek sketch. It's like, we don't own that, so we can't. Um, it really... It, it's almost like it was at Wizard, where it's just we were just trying to make each other laugh and be funny, and then we just happened to have the money to put it on air. It was weird. So once the show took off then, you know, and you're several seasons in, was that it with your involvement with Wizard? I mean, did you ever go back to assist with special issues or to contribute in any way to the magazine? No, unfortunately. I mean, we all got in our caravan of cars in the summer of 2004 and drove across the country from New York to L.A., and that was really our end of involvement with the magazines because we were way too busy producing the first season. And that was also the time where it didn't really hit yet, but you could see signs of it where the internet was kind of eating away at wizard and the whole publishing world. I think the internet is a nightmare invention. Personally, I think people love it because it's free two day shipping and it's got unlimited porn or whatever, but in a lot of ways it has not been a good thing. And one of the shames of it is that it killed so many magazines there's no such thing as news in, in Wizard at this point because 
anything that's published was written like six weeks ago at least. It's on the internet already. And a lot of effort was put with the companies to keep things secret so it would be discovered in the magazine just to keep that buzz going. And sales started going down because you just didn't need to read Wizard anymore. And the, the price guide was still valuable, but I don't think the price guide itself was enough to keep the sales going. It just slowly, slowly faded away. I mean, we cynically joked that, haha, we left and therefore the magazine went downhill. But it was just that was that was a shitty time that I'm I'm actually really happy I wasn't there for it because I would have been really bummed out. Yeah, because it does just sound like it was a very personal thing for you, like you say, being there from the early early days, and yeah, to see that happen. Now, speaking of the early days, you know, one name we haven't brought up yet in the discussion is the Big Cheese himself, and so we have to ask you this as we ask everybody, Doug, Garib Sheamus, cool or fool? Certainly not a fool. It's like you can't look at Bill Gates and say, oh, he's cool. It's kind of the same <laughs> thing. Garib was very passionate about the magazine and he knew what he loved, but he didn't, he wasn't in depth knowledgeable about the comics as we were because we were super nerds. So, you know, we made fun of him, but he was like the guy that was working upstairs and he would come downstairs and see the critical elements of the magazine that he had to approve, like the cover and stuff like that. And, you know, what do you say if you just like it? He would always be like, oh, that's great. That's great. And so then, you know, unfortunately becomes the thing where it's like, all we thought Garrett would say is, oh, it's great. It's great. And that would be like our, our way of just having fun with him. If you, if there's a meter, he's more cool than fool. I think, I think no one would say he's a fool because, I mean, look what his company did. Do you get a lot of people saying he was a fool? We have some people that have felt a little bit slighted by him because the ongoing joke is he didn't know anybody's names. So he would come up and say, hey, Garib Sheamus, who are you? Hey, Garib Sheamus. He'd introduce himself <laughs> five or six times to the same person. He never knew anybody's name that worked at the magazine. I'm assuming he knew you, he knew Pat, he knew Brian. And then, you know, that was kind of it. Joey Anarella, maybe. You know? <laughs> and then there was just a yeah <laughs> i mean that's that's a fair criticism but at the same time you know you can't imagine the hassle he's going through behind his desk with with business stuff and then he runs downstairs to approve some editorial stuff and he really didn't interact he, there's no time for him to actually meet you know everybody and i'm sure that you know the rest of us were so close-knit that it seemed ridiculous that he wouldn't also somehow know everyone that being said i myself whatever part of your brain controls remembering names it doesn't work for me so I myself would be like, uh, your name is Mike. And they're like, no, it's Matt. I'm like, oh, yeah, I knew, yeah Matt. I knew that. So coming from the side of things where I never meant malice, I'm sure I'm sure Garib desperately wanted to know everyone's names, but he just didn't. That wasn't his experience. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's a very valid point. It's not that he didn't care. It's just like, yeah, that's not what his brain uh, retains. Yeah. Um, so obviously, and again, you said it, it meant, uh, you know, a, a lot to you, this Wizard magazine. So I'm curious, do you have mementos or any swag from the Wizard days, whether it was early on or later on or Toy Fair, you know, things that like meant something to you that you held on to when you packed up the car and headed for California? I have in the garage every magazine that i worked on over there wow um, i may i may be missing one or two but you know i just feel like there's a lot of pride and even if they're not like front and center in the living room they're just something that i want to have close to me and now that you mention it it's always on my to-do list to see which ones i'm missing and go on ebay or something but as far as like action figures and such no not really you know my favorite memories of that place were things like when Magic the Gathering got big, there would be like a dozen of us that would stay late and 
play magic in the conference room and just became these amazing late night marathons. I mean, it's 12 people playing one game together. And so those are the things I cherish, those memories. And, you know, I played magic for, for many years after that. Um, and those are the things I think I still have around here that are here because of my time at Wizard. But I can't say that, like, oh, yeah, there's my favorite copy of Lady Death one half. I, you know, I, I don't have stuff like that. <laughs> now, what would you say then, you know, you're talking about there's a lot of pride there, but is there a particular accomplishment, whether it was an issue of the magazine or just something that Wizard as a whole you feel accomplished that you contributed to that, that means a lot to you? That if somebody said, well, like, Wizard, what was that? Why why do you care so much about it? Like, aside from the personal relationships, is there a professional thing you can point to and say, well, I mean, I got to do this. What came to mind, which may be boring, is that issue 11 where I designed every single page was just a great achievement for me that I could be proud of. Like the whole magazine was something I did. And it's more work than it sounds like. Like that was not something I just did over a weekend. Like that was a shitload of effort. And partly the dark book, which I was very proud of because also that was my first time working on something that wasn't wizard at wizard. And I was allowed to put my stamp on it because there was no format. There was no structure to how we were doing the specials. I mean, the specials eventually became, I don't want to say cookie cutter, but there was, there was a process, but with the dark book, it was all fresh and new. And that was very exciting for me. I think what was just cool is being part of the DNA of that place. Like we all had different great ideas that just meshed together. So like if I sat down with a magazine, I'd be like, Oh yeah, that's me. And Oh yeah, that's somebody else's. I didn't like that. But as far as like, Bum, bum, bum. It would really just be the fact that I did all the pages on issue 11. I'm actually very excited now. Should we ever meet in person, I would love to get you to autograph the Doug Goldstein issue. Now we know. <laughs> issue 11. That's all you. I love uh, it. It'll go down in value on eBay. That's for sure. <laughs> now, what could you tell us about what you are doing these days? You got a new show. What other exciting things are going on for you? Well, the new show is huge for me because it's the first time that I went off on my own and everything was just my decision. Of the, our crew, there's a lot of shows that others of us created and were done at Stupid Buddy Studios and Stop Motion Animation where people were together on it. But this is me off on my own. Titmouse produced it. And for better or for worse, everything was ultimately, you know, the buck stops here. I'm really proud of it. That's really cool. My parents are thrilled. It's on the air right now, Saturdays at midnight on the Sci-Fi Network. And... They gave me a lot of creative freedom. I got to say, John Cotton, the, the executive over there that greenlit the show, trusted me a lot and, and let me do most things. So it's, it's, it's really a thrill. At the same time, I had this crazy idea for a game show that I don't want to say too much about, but I'm pitching it around town and we've already got two offers from people that want to work on it. So that's great. Well, you can tell us, Doug, it's the wizard wheel, right? That you guys used to do at conventions. It's just oh, based on that concept. <laughs> I got to think about that now. That's a great idea for a show. <laughs> I got to call it something else, though. It's got to be like the Doug Wheel or something. Yeah, there you go. Thank you so much for joining us. This really was a pleasure. Oh, the pleasure was mine. And that does it for another episode of The Wizard Files. A very big thanks to Doug Goldstein for sharing his stories and his passion for the guide to comics. We really appreciate you for checking out this interview series, and there is so much more to come. Of course, there's also our main show. Every Wednesday, we cover an issue of Wizard Magazine in depth, going back in time to the 90s comic scene on our main show, at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards Under 
underscore comics on Instagram. Of course, every other Wednesday, we have our mini episodes to cover all the stuff we couldn't get to. Wizard was so packed with content back in the day, we had to come, we had to come up with a whole second show just to cover it. And of course, we have special issues coming up. Like we mentioned, The Dark Book. Yes, that will be a special bonus episode coming up. Doug had his hand in putting that together. And we have many more Wizard alumni from the old days lined up to come and tell their stories. Man, this is an exciting year, the 30th anniversary of Wizard. Once again, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, we're closing the files. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.